Now Luke chapter 4, we're going to look at uh, verses 14 to 22. Perhaps you'll remember from John chapter 1 and verse 46 that Nathanael asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But then he met Jesus and found out that indeed something good, and more particularly something, someone glorious, uh, can come from Nazareth. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You also know, I'm sure, that in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is often referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. And it's not really surprising that this Jesus, who is unashamed to call us his family, is unashamed to be linked to a town that was generally despised by Jews of the day. Uh, One of the Puritans said of the Lord Jesus that God had only one son and made a preacher of him. And in this passage, uh, Luke gives us the first glimpse of the preaching ministry of our Lord. His preaching ministry begins in, in Galilee to the north the northern part of of Israel. And um, during that time, he preaches the gospel. He proclaims the kingdom. He calls disciples. He does miracles. And we find that his ministry culminates. His ministry in that region uh, comes to a climax in chapter 9 and verse 20 of Luke when the apostle Peter declares that the Lord Jesus is the Christ. And then from that point on, the Lord begins to clarify to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, and at Jerusalem he's going to die, and he will rise again for the salvation of his people. But now in this first glimpse that Luke gives us of the Galilean ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are shown and taught about that extraordinary day when the Lord Jesus, who has based his Galilean ministry in the town of Capernaum, but the Lord Jesus on this occasion goes back to the town where he was brought up, to the town of Nazareth. And in verse 16 it says that that was where the Lord Jesus was raised. Well, he goes back to Nazareth, and as he goes back, he comes back as something of a celebrity. Verse 15 tells us that he's been teaching at uh, all the synagogues in the Galilean region. In those days, there were probably around 30 to 40 uh, synagogues in the Galilean region, and the Lord Jesus has been preaching and teaching in all of those synagogues, and now he comes home. And now he begins to teach in his hometown amongst people who know him well and know his family. Now there's an awful lot that we can learn from this passage. We're going to focus on the first part of it, just down to verse 22. And we're going to focus on four key points. Jesus and power, 
to begin with, and then Jesus and worship, and then Jesus and Scripture, and then finally Jesus and salvation. And we want to begin with this whole idea of Jesus and power. Now, the Puritans were right when they said that God has one absolutely unique Son, and when He comes into the world, the Father has made Him a preacher. And if you look at verses 18 and 19 of our section, verses 18 and 19, the Lord Jesus is in the synagogue, and He reads from the prophet Isaiah, and He reads from Isaiah 61. And look at verses 18 and 19, and you'll notice the word proclaim. And you read about proclaiming the good news, and proclaim liberty, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that word proclaim is a word that is always, almost always translated in the New Testament as preach. So when Jesus comes, indeed he comes as a preacher. And when God prophesied what Messiah would do, he prophesied that Messiah would proclaim. Messiah would preach. He would proclaim the gospel. And now Jesus comes and does precisely that. And he preaches the gospel and preaches the word. But the notable thing that we should uh, uh, emphasize today is that the Lord Jesus' preaching is characterized and marked by the power of the Spirit. And you see in verse 14 that when the Lord Jesus comes, he comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is by the enabling of the Holy Spirit that the Lord Jesus does all of his ministry. He returns, says verse 14, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And when he goes about his ministry and everything he does in his ministry as Messiah, it is as he is enabled by and empowered by the Spirit of God. Isaiah 61 which our Lord quotes here, says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and it's for a particular purpose, because He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. So the Spirit of God is given to him, and the Spirit of God empowers him in order that he might fulfill his calling, in order that he might fulfill his ministry, in order that he might preach. And whatever he does, he does by the power of the Spirit of God. In a unique way, we're going to see that we are empowered as well. But the Lord Jesus is empowered in a unique way because John 3.34 says, The Father has given him the the Spirit without measure. And so we cannot duplicate in a full sense what the Lord Jesus does because he is absolutely unique. And even his empowering, his anointing by the Spirit is unique. He has given the Spirit without measure. But the main point is that the key to the Lord's ministry and the power in the Lord's ministry is the Spirit. The Spirit has given him all that he needs to be able to fulfill his ministry in the power of God. Now we find, for instance, in Luke 11, verses 19 and 22, these words. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, says Jesus... By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now notice this. But if it is by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
So Jesus says, what I'm doing is by the finger of God. When you hear me preach, and when you see me do miracles, and when you observe the healings, know this, that it is by the the finger of God, he says. It's the finger of God. It's not demonic forces, and it's not the devil. It's by the finger of God. And that's what is said in Luke. Now, when you look at the Matthew passage, Matthew 12, 28, the way Matthew puts it is like this. He has Jesus say these words, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is among you. And those two phrases mean the same thing. It's the Spirit of God. It's the the finger of God. And the point is that it's by the Spirit of God that he is enabled and empowered to do all that he is called to do as the Messiah of God, as the Savior of his people. And when the church now, you get to the book of Acts, and the church now is being sent off into the world to do the work of God, the church also then goes and does its work by the power of God. We've seen this kind of thing already in the book of Acts as we studied. We've seen this connection between how Jesus goes into the world and does his ministry by the Spirit and how the church is sent by Jesus into the world to do its ministry by the Spirit of God. And the Father gives the Spirit to the Son and the Father and the Son give the Spirit to us. And so what we read in Acts is this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and really throughout the world, and it'll be by the power of the Spirit, in the same way that Jesus was empowered by the Spirit to do his work. So Jesus and power, where does his power come from? It's from the Spirit. Now, there are at least two lessons for us to gather from this truth, and the first is this, dependence on the Spirit dependence on the Spirit. We need to be as dependent on the Spirit of God as Jesus was. We need today Spirit-empowered preaching. We need Spirit-empowered preachers. Spurgeon said, you know, it's not enough to just have preachers. He said, you know, some preachers are really bad and really dull. And Spurgeon said, he said, dull preachers, dull preachers make the best martyrs because they're so dry they burn really well. He says, we... (laughs) Makes me laugh every time I read that. You see, it's not enough to just have preachers. You can pump them out just like that. You can send them to seminary do their studies, give them a degree, and send them off. It's not enough. We need preachers who are mighty in the Scriptures. And we need preachers who are filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit to do the work that God has called them to do. So that, by the grace of God, we might have preaching that is is useful and effective for the conversion of sinners. Useful and effective for the saving of souls. Useful and effective for the edifying of the saints. Useful and effective so that the saints of God might increasingly, week by week, be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way that happens is if the the preacher is filled with the Spirit and the preaching is empowered by the Spirit to that end. 
so that we can have this kind of thing. Stuart Elliott writes in his book on preaching, he writes about the experience he and others had under the ministry of a man named Howell Griffiths. And he said, well, let me quote what he says. He says, the preacher's sermons were quite lengthy, filled with word pictures and delivered with obvious love and deep emotion. But there was something else. They were accompanied by an indefinable influence. That's what we're after. That's what we long for. That's what we pray for. As he preached, heaven came to earth. The invisible world was more real than the visible one. Now, there was a touch of glory. Christ was more precious than anything or anyone else in the universe. The word came over with a self-authenticating force that was irresistible. After each sermon, the congregation sat in stunned silence, overcome by the sheer power of the word. And sometimes the silence was followed by spontaneous prayer. Some came to Christ. Many others, like me, who were already believers, were changed forever. We had experienced a small taste of what happens in revival, and we all now knew what, what unction was. So I'm saying that, that preaching needs to be done in the power of the Spirit. And we need to, as a congregation, be wholly and completely dependent on the Spirit for anything good that is done in these services. You can't depend on the preacher. You can't even depend on your own earnestness for something good to happen in our services. It must be by the Spirit. If Jesus needed to be empowered by the Spirit, if that's how God sends him, empowered by the Spirit, dependent on the Spirit, that's how we are sent, and that's how we live, and that's how we minister, and that's how we have our services, wholly dependent on the Spirit. That's the first lesson. The second is devotion to prayer. If we're dependent on the Spirit and we sense our need of the Spirit, then we will be necessarily devoted to prayer. William Chalmers Burns was a a young preacher, greatly used of God. Whilst Robert Murray McShane went to Israel for a while, Burns took his place. And whilst he was there, there was a tremendous awakening Tremendous moving of the Spirit of God. And this is the kind of thing that happened. During the whole time, says Burns, that I was speaking, the people listened with the most solemn attention. At last, their feelings became too strong and broke forth in weeping and wailing. Tears and groans intermingled with shouts of glory and praise from some of the people of God. Strong men fell upon the ground as if they were dead. You say, well, that was some some crazy Pentecostal church. No, no. (laughs) This was the moving of the Spirit of God blessing the faithful preaching of the Word such that people were in awe and people were thunderstruck. And it came in answer to prayer. You see, the power is linked with the prayer in the mysterious providence of God. Listen to what one writer says 
about prayer and its relationship to preaching. As an agency in promoting the kingdom of God on earth, prayer is to be put not side by side with preaching, but above them. They are nothing except uh, the preaching of the word and the ordinances. They are nothing except a divine influence vitalizes them. And that divine influence, the power of the Spirit of God, comes only along the channels opened by prayer. We want to see the powerful working of God in our midst. We need to pray. And by powerful, I don't mean people falling on the ground. That may happen. Who knows? But powerful manifests itself in different ways, manifests itself in you growing exponentially spiritually, in you becoming significantly more like Christ, mortifying sin radically, being done with it, it manifests itself in you becoming just a a person who's nicer to be around, frankly, because you're more like Jesus. Manifests itself in that way. If we want power, then we pray. McShane said, prayer is more powerful than preaching. It is prayer that gives preaching all its power. Why is that? Well, because prayer is calling down from heaven the power of the Spirit. And that same Spirit who empowers Jesus in his ministry empowers weak vessels like us so that we enjoy the working of God in our souls and in our midst. And so, two lessons then for us that flow from this whole idea of Jesus and power is that we ourselves experience a dependence on the Spirit and devotion to prayer. That's the first point. The second thing is Jesus and worship. Now, you see verse 16 says, as was his custom. Notice, and he taught, uh, verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It was his custom. This was his habit. This is what Jesus did on Saturdays. This is what he did on the Sabbath. He, He just went to the synagogue. Didn't have to think about it. Didn't get up in the morning and say, I just, like, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with myself today. No, this was his custom. This was his habit. He went to the synagogue and he worshipped with the people of God. He went to the synagogue and he heard the scriptures read. He went to the synagogue and he sat under the ministry of God's holy word. This was his custom. Now, this word custom is used several other times in the New Testament. Jesus' family, as was their custom, they went to the feast. They were commanded to go to the feast. Read about that in the Old Testament. And his family, as was their custom, they went to the feast. Every year they went to the feast that were required of them. Jesus, later on we're told, as was his custom, he went to the Mount of Olives. He was always doing that. The disciples saw that. They noticed that that's his custom. That's his habit. He's always doing that. We know that about the Lord Jesus. And then we read about the fact that the ladies, they anointed him. They anointed the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ, as was their custom. When people died, that's what they did. This was customary. This was habitual. They always did this kind of thing. We're not surprised by this. And then we're told, when we hear about Barabbas, we're told that 
it was the custom to release a prisoner at Passover. I mean, they did it every year. Every year at Passover, they would release a prisoner. And whatever the reasons were for it, that was their custom. So we get a sense of this word, custom. This was their habit. This is what they always did. And really, for the Jews, since the Babylonian captivity, uh, they gathered at the synagogue. And they would meet at the synagogue. And they would worship God. And they would praise the Lord. And they would pray to the Father. And they would study the Word together. This is customary for them. This was customary for Jesus. Now, I want to tell you that there's a lesson for us there. Now, the lesson is very simple. I'm sure you're ahead of me. And the lesson is that we need to develop, if we haven't already, and I know many of you have, we need to develop the habit of gathering with the saints on the Lord's Day to worship and to praise and to pray and to learn and to study. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. And so Paul is talking about uh, a gathering, um, a gift for the, the suffering people in Jerusalem. But he's saying, now, now when you get together, you know, put something aside. Well, when do you get together? Well, he's talking about the Lord's Day. He's saying, uh, look, when, when you get together on Sunday... He's not saying, like, when, when do you get together? Think of a time. No, he knows they're going to get together on the Lord's Day. And he knows they're going to get together on the Lord's Day. I mean, he's assuming, he's not telling them to get together so that they can put some money aside. He's assuming that that's what they're going to do because that was customary. And uh, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, Chapter 10, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit or the custom. That's the same word. It's the custom of some not to meet with the people of God. It's the custom of some who name the name of Jesus. They don't care about meeting together with the people of God. It's their custom. It's their habit to neglect meeting with the people of God. And if you're listening... And it's your habit not to meet with the people of God. I mean, you say you're a Christian, but you have no good reason. I know there are people who have very good reason to not be in church. But if you're a Christian, a professing Christian, and you say that you are a Christian, but you, for no good reason, is just now your habit to not meet with the people of God, well, shame on you. And also... I wonder if you're wiser than Jesus. Because it was his custom. Why would it not be yours? For your benefit? For the benefit of the saints? For the glory of God? But for you and I who, well, this is our custom. And in fact, haven't we found that we need it? I mean, haven't we found and understand more than we ever have how how wonderful it is to meet with the saints and to worship the Lord and to be under his word. Oh, we treasure that, don't we? It is, in a real sense, 
and perhaps a more profound sense than we've ever known, a delight. So we make this a habit. And, you know, we want, we want children growing up to know that, you know, this is a habit. This is, this is customary for our family. We want children who, if on a Sunday, <clears throat> you know, you don't take them to church. The kid says, what's wrong? You know, how, how come we're not in church? That's what you want from your children. You want them to be shocked that we're not going to church. You want them to be surprised. Because it was our custom to do that. Thirdly, Jesus and Scripture. Verses 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17. Jesus goes into the the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and they, they hand him the scroll. He, he had stood up to, to read, because that was customary, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he placed, and he found the place where it was written. So papyrus was a, a reed that was largely found in the, the Nile Delta, and it grew to about 7 to 16 feet, and they would take the, the soft inside of it, and from that they would make really what is paper in those days. And they would take strips of the soft inside and they'd, they'd lay it out in strips like that and then they'd lay it at, at cross sections and then they'd, they'd, they'd compress it somehow. They'd get it and the, it would squeeze out the juices from the plant and from those strips. And then those juices would, would somehow function as a kind of glue and then you'd have sort of a piece of papyrus paper. And then you'd, you'd take that same kind of juice and glue, and then you'd attach other pieces of papyrus to it. And then you'd, you'd have sort of a, now you'd have a long section. And, um, and it would be glued together. And then you'd, then you'd roll it up. You have two wooden dowels, and you'd roll it up like that, and then you'd have a scroll. And on it, then people would write on those, on those scrolls, those papyrus scrolls. And, and um, a book like Luke would be written on that kind of papyrus scroll. And a book like Luke would, would, you'd have about 30 feet of this papyrus. And you'd roll it up and roll it up and roll. And, and it would be about 30 feet long. So it's quite cumbersome. It's not, you know, my Kindle, I just, I was like, Boy, it's fabulous. Not, not in those days, right? Um, Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah. Whether that was just providential or whether the Lord himself asked for that, we don't know, but... Um, that would have been a big scroll. And when you unfurled it and unrolled it, it would be, well, without any chapters, no chapter divisions, no verse divisions, and in fact, not even word divisions. All you would see is just letters. So you'd have, well, if Luke is 30 feet long, Isaiah pretty long too. So there's a lot there. And all you would see when you'd open up, you wouldn't see chapter 61 and verse 1. You'd just see words and just see letters. And Jesus found the right spot and read it. That's astounding. And so what would happen in a synagogue service is that they'd have prayers 
And then they'd have um, some readings from the, from the law and the prophets, and then um, they would sing the psalms, and then somebody would give sort of a, a paraphrase for those who didn't speak Hebrew. And then they'd have a lesson, they'd have a, a sermon, and the man would stand up, maybe a guest preacher like the Lord Jesus, and he'd stand up, he'd read a text, and then he'd sit down to teach. And that's what happened with the Lord Jesus. But what I want to point out to you is that the Lord Jesus roll, unrolled this scroll with this mass of Hebrew words, and he knew the information about Isaiah so much. He knew the book of Isaiah so well that he found the right spot, and he read it. And I'm saying he knows his Bible, and I'm saying to you that the lesson is that you and I ought to know our Bibles. That's the lesson we can draw from that. There's something more important coming because we're going to talk about salvation, but at the very least here, know your Bibles. Know your Bibles. The Lord Jesus, one writer says, he found the right place, and as a result, Jesus must have had intimate knowledge of the Hebrew language in general, and Isaiah's prophecy in particular. He not only worshipped God, but he also knew his word. There's a powerful example for us here. If the very Son of God himself devoted himself to studying the Bible, then we must do the same. How can we possibly live without the Scriptures that satisfied our Savior's soul? The Lord Jesus knew the Holy Scriptures. You and I need to know the Holy Scriptures. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man does not live by bread alone. Your life will not be full because you have money, you have a house, you have a jacuzzi, you have a pool, you have whatever it is you think is really key to make you happy. That's not going to do it. That won't cut it. Man doesn't live by bread alone and all the stuff that bread can bring. You live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You need to know your Bible. And it's not like, you know, you get whipped so you, okay, I've got to know my Bible. No, this is, like, I love the Bible because this is God's word to me. This is all about the Lord Jesus who is the Rose of Sharon to me. Do you know your Bible? Some years ago, Christianity Today did a poll uh, and and they concluded from this poll that the, the number one influence in shaping a person's morality and character is regular Bible reading. Regular Bible reading. You know, if you listen to the Bible read, some, some of us, you know, you, you see it in front of you and, and we reinforce it with a re, someone reading it to us. They get it on tape and CD and so forth. And if you, if you just listen to the reading of the Bible, you can listen to the reading of the whole Bible in 71 hours. 71 hours. Now, 71 hours. The average North American watches about 80 hours of TV in three weeks. You can draw your own conclusions. If you, if you read the Bible 15 minutes a day, you can read it through in a year. So, so you do have the time, and you do have the resources. So I want to encourage you to follow the Lord Jesus and be much in the Word.
That will be key to your spiritual growth. It's one of the fundamental reasons why we flounder in our Christian lives is because we're not tethered to the Bible and not rooted in the Bible. We don't know enough and we forget. But I'm urging you, brothers and sisters, to be in the Word and have the Word at your fingertips the way the Lord Jesus did. We saw it in His temptation. And oh, how the Word of God shapes our souls and influences our characters and our behavior. Jesus and the Word. And then finally, Jesus and the Gospel. Jesus and the Gospel. Well, when Jesus uh, sat down, he began to explain. Now, he had just quoted Isaiah 61. We'll see that in verses 18 and 19. And then he rolls up the scroll and he sits down, and now he's going to begin to teach. We don't have the sermon. All we have is this key phrase that Jesus said to them, Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Right in front of you is the one who is the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy. You're seeing it happen as I speak. And so then he would go on to expand and he would really give them a sermon. And the sermon by Christ would have been all about Christ. You know, Spurgeon says that... um, the sermon cannot do any good unless there's a savor of Christ in it. Ah, oh, there was a savor of Christ in this sermon. Christ takes this messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, he reads it to them, and then he begins to explain how he is the fulfillment of it. There was a savor of the Lord. There was much of Christ in this sermon by Christ. Well, let me tell you about this gospel, because that's what, he's, that's what he's talking about. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news. He's anointed me to preach the gospel. Well, let me tell you about this gospel. Let me tell you, first of all, about the content. In terms of the content of the gospel that the Lord Jesus is preaching, this is a gospel of salvation. It's not a gospel about political liberty. He's not come to free the slaves. He's not come to Uh, bring uh, a wonderful political situation and to rescue them from the yoke of Rome. He's not come for these reasons. He's not come to reform society. He's not come to preach some kind of social gospel. No, he's come to save people from their sins, and that's what he preaches. He's come to preach, as verse 19 says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what's the year of the Lord's favor? Well, this is Isaiah and God's reference to what was known as the year of Jubilee. And every 50 years in Israel, there would be a year of Jubilee. And you read about that in Leviticus chapter 25. And it's about this. What happens in the year of Jubilee? Well, fabulous things happen. If I had to sell my land because I was in debt, and the 50th year, I get it back. If I had to sell myself into slavery because, you know, I was in trouble for one reason or another, in that year, the 50th year, I get to go free. Debts are canceled. Debts are wiped out. Slavery is done away with for those moments, and you're, you're liberated and you're set free. And that's what happened in the year of Jubilee. And Isaiah is talking about, and God in Isaiah is talking about, like, this is the year of Jubilee to end all years of Jubilee. Because this 
is not just talking about physical circumstances, but no, we're talking about salvation from sin. Body and soul, salvation from sin. Because Isaiah, well, he's, he says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. Not talking about physically poor, we're talking about spiritually poor. Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Those who are spiritually bankrupt, God will give them life. God will rescue them. God will provide righteousness. He'll save them from their sins. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. You know, those who are in bondage, not to some Roman yoke, but something far more serious. They're in bondage to Satan and to sin. While on the cross, Jesus will come. He'll conquer Satan and he'll conquer sin. And those who are in bondage to them will be set free. He'll make a mockery of the powers of darkness and he'll liberate his people. Jesus is preaching that kind of gospel. I'll set at liberty those who are oppressed. Those who because of sin, are slaves to their slave master. Romans 6 talks about how the devil is a taskmaster and a cruel one at that. And he has you do his bidding, which will land you in hell. They're oppressed by sin and Satan. And the Lord Jesus comes to set you free. And you probably experienced something of that already. You know, you know what it's like to be in the grip and in the bondage of sin when Jesus came, he said, I've come to save people just like you. And then he says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, favor to proclaim to you that this is an age of grace. There's hope for the hopeless. There's forgiveness for the wicked. There's life for those who are dead. There's hope for you who are hopeless. And if you feel the weight of your sin just crushing you, and if you're afraid of the judgment upon sin that will surely come upon you, well, there's life for you. There's hope for you. There's a Savior sent to save people like you, and you can believe in him today. That's the content. That's what this gospel is all about. You know, we're going, to, we're going to sing this in just a little bit. But this is what it's about. Hark, the glad sound, the Savior comes. The Savior promised long ago. Let every heart prepare a throne and every voice a song. He comes the prisoner to release. In Satan's bondage held, the gates of brass before him burst, the iron fetters yield. He comes the brokenhearted to bind, the bleeding soul to cure. And with the treasures of his grace, enrich the humble poor. Our glad hosannas, prince of peace, thy welcome shall proclaim. And heaven's eternal arches ring with thy beloved name. That's the, that's the content. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why Jesus came, to save people like you. To rescue people just like you. To forgive people just like you. And that's why you can be saved today. Because he's still, he's still offering this salvation. It's still, it's still the age of grace. It's still the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus still stands with outstretched arms and invites you to believe and be saved. There's hope for you.
the response? The response? Well, you know, Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the way to respond to this content, the way to respond to this gospel is to say, Lord, you're right. I am amongst the unrighteous. I am a man of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. And I'm the ones about whom you spoke. You know, the Pharisees say, well, we don't need a Savior. What do you mean, unrighteous? What do you mean talking about us as if we were sinners? We're not like, we're not like the sinners. Now, that's why they weren't saved. But if you say today, yes, Lord, I am a sinner. I am these people about whom you speak here. I am amongst the poor and the captives and the oppressed. I'm right in there. You admit that. And then you come to Jesus. You ask him to save you. So the content is very clear, isn't it? The response, it's also very clear. You need to believe. You need to admit your sin and ask him to save you. That's That's as simple as it is. And then the use of the gospel. Well, the use of the gospel is very, very clear for us as well. We, we, need to, we need to tell other people about it. You know, we need to go and, and let them know. We need to go into the cancer ward and let every single cancer patient there know, look, I, I, got, I, have, the, I have the cure for cancer right here. You know, that which will kill you, that which will send your soul into hell forever. I have the answer to that. I have the, I have the provision of God. I can point you to the, the only one in all the universe who can rescue you. And we go and we tell them that. When, when Isaiah talks about liberty here, you know, pro, to proclaim liberty to the captive, that's probably, that word liberty is probably better translated forgiveness. Because these people, I mean, they're in bondage because of their sin. And, and, and that sin has, has consequences. It, it brings judgment. They're debtors. And God will forgive them or God will release them and God will give them liberty from their sin. And that's what is being offered to unbelievers. And that's what's being offered to you if you're not a Christian. And that's what you and I Brother and sister, it's our responsibility, it's our solemn privilege to go and to tell people that there's hope. You know, it's a marvelous thing. Sometimes you run across an unbeliever and they're searching. You know, they're searching here, there, and everywhere. They're going from one broken cistern to another. They're talking to this person, that person, and nobody can help them. You know what you and I can do? We can do what Jesus did. Jesus stood up in the synagogue and he says, you know, this year of the Lord's favor, this salvation that you've been waiting for, it's right in front of you. Here I am, he says. It's me. And what you and I have to do with this gospel is to go and say, look, it's him. It's him. Just forget, forget all the rest. You know, turn aside from all the rest. Just look at him. He'll save you. That's our privilege. And that's our responsibility. God, use us for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who the Lord Jesus is. We thank you for his glorious work. We thank you that because of him we can be saved, rescued, and we can call you our Father. Bless his word today. Bless his gospel. 
that it may sound around the world and be used to save sinners. Make us those who trumpet this gospel wherever we are able. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.